throughout David's life, uh, he had the confidence that whenever he was in any kind of trouble or distress, God was always there for him to be his refuge, his help, and his strength. Let me just review some of the places we've been. When Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him, he wrote in Psalm 59, verses 16 and 17, But as for me, I will sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness or faithful love in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me faithful love. When David fled to Gath and was seized by the Philistines, he wrote in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere men do to me? And in another psalm celebrating what happened there in Gath, Psalm 34, verses 7 and 8, he wrote, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. When David was hiding from Saul in the cave, in Psalm 57, he wrote verses 1 and 2, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Another psalm that, that was written during that time, Psalm 142, verses 3 and 5. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. When driven from the cave and hiding in the desert wilderness of Judah, he wrote in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Later in verses 6 and 8, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And when the Ziphites, who were from the tribe of Judah, like David was, betrayed David, telling Saul where David was, he wrote in Psalm 54, For strangers have risen up against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the sustainer of my soul. All of David's life. No matter what difficulties he faced, God was his refuge, God was his strength, 
God was his helper. But when we come to Psalm 34 and Psalm 51, David is facing the truth that Eli tried to communicate to his sons. His sons had, uh, if you remember, he was the high priest during the time when Samuel was born. His sons were abusing their uh, responsibilities as priests and stealing from the sacrifices of God. They were involved in immorality with the women who came to the temple. And Eli warned his sons, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? David, the Lord's anointed, had willfully and with premeditation committed adultery. The scripture says he saw her, he inquired about her, and he sent men and took her. Unwilling to face up to his sin and confess it, David attempted to cover it up, leading to the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And both of these sins were punishable by death. We've said it before. Sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go. Sin always keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin always costs you more than you wanted to pay. And David's learning the truth of these words. In Psalm 19, verse 13, he wrote, And keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Those are sins, willful sins, premeditated sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgression. See, David knows the holiness of God. He saw God kill Uzzah for his irreverence in touching the ark when they were moving the ark on a cart. And the scripture says he was afraid of the Lord that day. David saw God remove his spirit from Saul because of his disobedience. And now David's in the situation where this God who had been his refuge, this God who had been his help, this God who had been his strength is now his adversary. And there is nothing David can do to make it right. In the sacrificial system, there were no sacrifices to cover premeditated and willful acts like adultery and murder. The punishment was death. Most commentators have concluded that between David's marriage to Bathsheba and Nathan's confronting David, eight months to a year have passed. The baby conceived that night has been born. What were those months like for David? Well, here in Psalm 34, look at verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That is a description of a man burdened by guilt and the fearful expectation of coming judgment. Someone has described David in these verses as a defiled conscience, a worried mind, and a sick body. Chuck Swindoll, in his book on David, gives a vivid picture of what David's days were like. He says, David wasn't relaxing and taking it easy, sipping lemonade on his patio, 
during the aftermath of his adultery. Count on it. He had sleepless nights. He could see his sin written across the ceiling of his room as he tossed and turned in bed. He saw it written across the walls. He saw it on the plate when he tried to choke down his meals. He saw it on the faces of his counselors. He was a miserable husband, an irritable father, a poor leader, and a songless composer. He lived a lie, but he couldn't escape the truth. He had no joy. Sin does that to you. It's part of the wages that sin inevitably demands. Everything is empty, hollow, joyless, pointless. True guilt is there, oppressively there, constantly there. That's David's life. Eight months to a year. Let me pause for a moment and say this. If there's someone in this room, and I don't know the hearts of everyone here, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're in the same situation David is. You are guilty before God because of your sin. You are facing certain coming judgment. And there's absolutely nothing in yourself you can do to make it right. Eight months have passed. Nathan comes to confront David, telling the story of the man who had taken another man's lamb for a traveler who had come in, this little lamb that was part of the family. And David, who was a shepherd, angrily responds to the story and says, that man's going to pay fourfold. And Nathan says, you're the man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. I don't doubt that every eye was on David. Some no doubt shocked, some who suspected. Kings later in David's line would immediately have that prophet hauled off to prison. But David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan told David, the Lord has taken away your sins. You will not die. How could Nathan do that? Because God had promised to make provision for sinners. And a descendant of David, a young girl by the name of Mary, will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and a body will be prepared for her into which will come the second person of the Godhead, the one we call Jesus Christ. And he will go to a cross and God will put on Jesus Christ David's adultery, David's murder, all of David's sins. And he will pay the penalty, the debt David could not pay that he owed. And in Romans chapter 3, God talked about because of that sacrifice was going to come, God to look at sinners in the Old Testament who had sinned against God. 
even sinners who there was no sacrifice that could even cover their sin in God's sight, and God could forgive them because his son was going to pay for that debt, and he could pass over it. And these verses that we started our meeting with, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit, are quoted in chapter 4 of Romans of those who by faith come to God empty-handed for any way of paying for their guilt. And they find in God a savior because of the work of Jesus Christ. So if you would turn over to Psalm 51. We're going to look at this trip that David took during those eight months In Psalm 51, David makes his repentance as public as his guilt. And he shares with us what he learned about repentance and confession. Psalm 51, the reading at the very beginning, the setting of it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, your faithful love. According to the greatness of your compassions, blot out my transgressions. David's appeal rests on the attributes of God, God's grace, his unfailing love, his compassion. David comes to God with nothing but his sin, no excuses, No attempt to lessen the seriousness of his sin and no attempt to blame others for what he has done. He comes owning his guilt and throwing himself on the mercy of God. Back in the late 1700s, there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as he preached that sermon, he said to the people in the audience who were listening to him, he says, you are being held over the very pit of hell by the hand of God. And the fact that you're not in hell at this moment rests surely on the pleasure of God keeping you out. It's not because you are not more righteous than those who are already in hell. Indeed, there's probably people in hell who are better than you are. No, it rests on the pleasure of God. And he, as he goes through, I recommend reading that sermon. He talks about what keeps men from coming to God. And he made this statement. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, in what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. David comes, and he knows there's absolutely nothing he can do. He casts himself on the mercy of God. At the end of verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. It, comes, it continues in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me 
from my sins. He cries out for cleansing from God. Blot out. Erase the record against me. Did you know every word you say is recorded in a book in heaven? Do you know every deed you do is recorded in a book in heaven? And someday the books will be opened for all those who don't trust Christ and they'll be judged from those books. David cries out to God. He says, erase my sins out of your books. Blot them out. He goes on, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This is a word to wash. It doesn't mean just a rinse. There's a stain. There's ingrained dirt. It has to be rubbed against a rock. It has to be kneaded with the hands. It needs extra cleaning. And David says, my sin, cleanse me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And then cleanse me from my sin. This is a word used for cleansing from defilement, from touching a dead body, or from previously being a leper. It, it is a cleansing that allows a person to participate in the temple. It allows people to come into the presence of God. Cleanse me from my defilement. Notice his description of his sins. At the end of verse 1, blot out my transgressions. It's in the plural Transgressions is coming to a boundary God has set and willfully saying, I'm going to go across it. It doesn't matter what God says. It's rebellion against God. He says in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity comes from a word that means twisted. It's something inherently evil. David's actions in taking Bathsheba Uh, away from one of his mighty men. She was the daughter of another one of his mighty men. She was the granddaughter of his number one counselor. And he betrayed all of them and, and forced her into sin with him. And then he murdered this man who was faithfully serving him. And everybody who heard about it said, that's twisted. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Sin is to miss the mark. God had set standards in the law. David had missed the mark. His disobedience was obvious. And the fault is all his own. It's my transgression, he says, my iniquity, my sin. When you come into the presence of God, you've got to own up to your sin. David goes on, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Some of what uh, Chuck Swindoll said. David was haunted. He felt his guilt. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. David had broken God's law. When God put in the death penalty for killing a man it was because man is made in the image of God murder is a sin against God destroying something he has made David had broken the laws of God he goes on I've done evil in your sight so that you may be justified when you speak and blameless when you judge David says I own up my sin I own to what I did because I want to vindicate God. God was right 
in pursuing me. God is right in pronouncing judgment on me. God is right in in bringing consequences for my sin because it's wrong. It's evil. He says, against you, I'm sorry, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Not only is David's sin the result of his choices, it flows from his nature that he got from his mother, that she got, and it traced all the way back to Adam and Eve's sin. Sin flows from who we are, not just what we do. Our skin isn't skin deep, it goes all the way to the bone. Verse 6, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part of me. You will make me to know wisdom. For almost a year, David had covered up his sin. But God wanted truth, honesty in his innermost being. God wanted David to learn wisdom, even from these terrible deeds. So David again cries out the same three requests he made earlier, only in reverse order. He says, verse 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide my sins from your face and blot out all my iniquities. Purify me with hyssop. Hyssop was only used three occasions in the Bible. It's a little shrub. In Exodus 12, it was used to sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost and lintel of the doors when the death angel passed over. In Leviticus 14, it's used for cleansing the leper. In Numbers 19.9, it's used to sprinkle the water to remove impurity, uh, the impurity of sin. And David uses those, and here's a wonderful picture of salvation. The Passover lamb pictures Jesus Christ. Why can we be cleansed from sin? Because Jesus Christ paid for it. And so we sing the song, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sing the song, have you been washed in the blood? The soul-cleansing blood of the lamb the basis of salvation without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin the basis of salvation is Jesus Christ came and shed his blood and so David says purify me and then notice what he says after that he says purify me with hyssop and I will be clean the second one was the cleansing of the leper that shows us how bad our sin is nothing could heal a leper A leper was totally defiled. A leper was outside the camp. And that's where you and I are without the cleansing of God. And then the last one, the sprinkling of the water to remove impurity for the purification of sins. When a leper was healed, he could come and they could sprinkle. If someone had touched a dead body, they could come and they could sprinkle this water that was mixed with the ashes of a red heifer and they could sprinkle it on a person and they were cleansed. And David says, listen, I don't understand how it can work. 
I just understand I have nothing to bring to you, God. I'm guilty. And I throw myself on your mercy and, and the Spirit of God leads him to leave us a picture of why that can be. He goes on, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That chorus, whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. If you stepped into the presence of God, if he was to call you into eternity today, would you be trying to justify yourself, pointing back to what you had done? Or do you have the confidence that through the, the blood of Jesus Christ, you are whiter than snow? David goes on, make me to hear joy and gladness, the bones which you have broken rejoice. It's been nine, eight months to a year as David has resisted struggled in his own mind with his guilt, struggled with his own mind, no doubt asking himself, how have I done these things? Has God put more and more pressure on David? He says, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen. Isaiah says of God, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. My sins are behind the back of God. God can't see my sin. And God answers David's prayer. Up in verse 8, we see the chastening of God, the discipline necessary to bring him to repentance, this sin that had robbed him of joy in his relationship with God. God's chastening, the writer of Hebrews remind us, is not joyful but sorrowful, yet for those who have been trained by it afterwards yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I was talking to a man at the dog park this morning, and we were talking about hearing and listening. And I shared with him, when my daughter was little, we took her to a, a hearing doctor because she thought, we thought she had poor hearing. There was something wrong with her hearing. And after testing her, he said, your daughter doesn't have a hearing problem. She has a listening problem. You're hearing my words. Are you listening? Are you listening? It took David almost a year to hear God's voice calling to him to come to trust this God who had been his helper and his refuge and his strength, to trust his God even with this. And so David came and he cried out for God to wash him, to cleanse him, to blot out his sins. But real repentance goes beyond a desire for cleansing. It goes beyond just forgiveness. It wants restoration in relationship. So in verses 10 through 10, after praying for God in, in verses 1 uh, through 9, that God would cleanse him from his sin, now David cries out to God to restore him in his relationship to God. 
So he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David wanted his entire being restored so that he could serve God acceptably again. He wanted a clean heart because out of your heart are the issues of life, we're told in Proverbs 4.23. And David had seen what came out of his heart. Adultery came out of his heart. Murder came out of his heart. He needed a clean heart as a corrective for his sinful nature. And so God asked, clean my heart. What a wonderful statement it is that those who believe in Christ are a new creation in God. He goes on and renew a steadfast spirit in me. A number of times in, in the Psalms, David talks about having a steadfast spirit for God. But during this past year, with his sin with Bathsheba, with his killing Uriah the Hittite, and then for a whole year of denial of of not being in God's presence, David had not had that heart attitude, and he asked God, restore that heart I had for you earlier. David is described as a man after God's own heart, and he's walked away, and he wants that heart again. Verse 11 Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He saw what happened to Saul when God removed his spirit. He saw the downward trek of of Saul's life. He says, listen, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't just forgive my sins and, and leave me in this pigsty. Don't take your spirit from me. Thankfully, that's not something that we face today as Christians, but we can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God in our lives. He goes on, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Boy, did you hear all those times in the Psalms I read before? Even though David's circumstances were were terrible. I sing for joy because you're my refuge. I sing for joy. There's been no singing for joy for the last year. He's not walking with God. He's not experiencing God's help. He's not experiencing God's working through his life. At the end of verse 12, he says, sustain me with a willing spirit. Sustain me with a a spirit that yields to your will, that wants to, to know you, that wants to walk with you, that heart's desire is to meet with you. And you hear that in David's songs, and he's lost all that. A Christian who's away from the Lord will say, I'm doing real good. David says, it's a lie. It's a lie. In verses 13 to the end, David makes his third request. Cleanse me. And God does that. David, you will not die. Your sins are forgiven. Restore me to my relationship with you. And now David says, use me. 
Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David said, I want to use my life to teach. There are seven penitent psalms in the book of Psalms. David wrote five of them. This is David's great statement. What do you need to do when you're away from God? What do you need to do when when you've wallowed in your sin? Trust him and come to him. Ask him for cleansing. Ask him to restore you. Ask him to teach you. He wrote Psalm 51. He wrote Psalm 32. He wrote Psalm 6. He wrote Psalm 38. He wrote Psalm 143. All psalms that spring out of David's life in different times, he taught. Isn't it nice to know there's a way back to God? He says, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. I will sing. Deliver me from the penalty of my sin, from, from the wickedness of my sin. He, there was blood guiltiness. He had murdered a man. And my tongue will sing joy of your righteousness, joyfully of your righteousness. And David writes psalms again. Psalms like 34. I encourage you to read Psalm 34. Verse 15 O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. I'm going to teach people. Teach people how to repent. Teach people how to confess. Teach people that are sinners against God that there's a way to God no matter what you've done. I'm going to sing revealing the joy of my salvation. I'm going to open my lips and declare your praise. People are going to hear about your goodness, your grace, your mercy from me. Verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. This whole sacrificial system was meant to reflect a heart. It was meant to reflect several times in Scripture. In Isaiah, God says, I hate these sacrifices. In Malachi, he says, I wish someday, I wish someone would shut the doors to my temple that you not offer any more worthless sacrifices. God says, that's not really what you desire. What does God desire? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David says, I, contrite means crushed. David said, I want a heart that's sensitive to you, O God. I want a heart that's as broken as your heart over sin in my life. I want a heart that's broken as your heart is for the world around me. I want a heart that's broken and crushed that comes to you for my strength, my help. Verses 18 and 19, some say were added at a later time by someone else. 
Verse 18, by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, sacrifices that come from a right heart attitude. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then young bulls will be offered on your idol, or on your altar, sorry. And I, I don't think this necessarily has to be added later by someone else because King David's actions affected the nation. I think what David's saying here is may my testimony and my example lead to blessing on those around me. You are not an island. Those of you who are parents, you're leaving something. Is it okay to just play the game and to, to show up and, and live contrary? No, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Is that what you're leaving behind? What an amazing thing to lay out your sin, to lay out your confession that came when, when he stood and Nathan looked at David and said, you're the man, and David had to make a decision. But thanks be to God, God had been working in his heart and David cast himself on the mercy of God and said, I have sinned. Well, what lessons do we take from this? The first is a warning. Spurgeon put it this way, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. If you're here and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God will not allow you to just sin and live as though nothing's wrong. He came after David. He burdened David with his guilt. He burdened David you know, he talks about broken bones. Now, God didn't physically break his bones, but David said, the chastening of God is on me. God wants you to walk with him, to be restored in your relationship with him, to be cleansed, to be restored, to be used. The second is, the worst offender... can appeal to God for forgiveness, for restoration, and for a life of fellowship and service if he comes to God with a broken spirit and bases his appeal on God's compassion and grace. That's true in salvation. And if you're here without Jesus Christ, God calls you to come to him owning your sin, casting yourself on the mercy of God, on the work of Christ at Calvary. If you're here as a Christian and you're walking contrary, God invites you to come to him, to cast yourself on his mercy and grace, to find cleansing, restoration, and useful service. That's the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, we're 
a little uneasy listening to David's words, having David to bear his heart and his soul. But we, we find a residence, uh, a, a, a likeness to our own hearts and lives. Oh God, help us to learn from David's experience. Cultivate broken spirits, broken and contrite hearts that are quick to call sin, sin, quick to come in to your presence. We thank you because of Jesus Christ. There's a way to you and a way back to you. And we thank you for your son in his own precious name.